0: Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money-off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash Ways. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh,
1: Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com slash Spotify. Or use the code SPOTIFY at checkout.
0: Achtung, Achtung, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA with me, Al Murray, James Holland, and of course, John McManus. Happy New Year, John. Happy New Year, Al. How are you? (laughs) I'm, I'm I'm much the same. Really? Um, <laughs> you, survived. you survived.
2: You <laughs> survived.
0: Fatter and marginally more um, battered in terms of alcohol intake, but otherwise essentially the same. Yeah.
2: <laughs> are you big on mince pies and all that kind of stuff?
0: Yeah, I, I like a mince pie. Are, are you aware of what a mince pie is, John? I mean, I've heard of it, but I've
1: never had it, actually. <laughs> so so I should probably have the explanation. What, so what is a mince what pie? What do you have? I you have they... eggnog or something, don't you? Well, I mean, I'm not an eggnog <laughs> person, but uh, we have like Christmas cookies cheese and right stuff?
2: Is it
0: ginger, right, ginger you know, stuff uh
1: which yeah. are yeah. really good yeah but yeah. we don't have mince pie so so what's in mince pie
0: well um it's, it's not mince basically re- not mince. it's sort of <laughs> raisin <laughs> and cinnamon and spice and stuff oh. right? an
1: orange peel
0: an orange peel a little sort of in a little pastry pie really and um and you can you have cream on it, even brandy butter. But they're they're sort of English sweet treat, really. That um, sounds good. They yeah. are nice. I like them. I, I'm partial to them. But I'm, I'm but very partial,
2: very partial. But we're not here um.
0: to do a hands across the water <laughs> cultural exchange about a Christmas um, uh, sweet bits, meats. Sweet meats. No, <laughs> nice. we're, we we uh, we're picking up where we left off. And last time you um, we were talking about the American mobilisation, which is still at this distance. And, of course, with the current state of the U.S. military, the size of the U.S. military, it's just the most, you look back at it, it's the most remarkable, incredible achievement. Isn't Astonishing. It? From, a, from a standing start, really. And done in a New Deal style, really. If you've got to characterize it as anything, it's a sort of New yeah. Deal army, if it's anything.
1: But where had we got to? Where had we got to, Jim? I think we got <laughs> into the beginning of 1941, hadn't we? Yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I would argue that it's funny because the U.S. had had two previous flirtations with this, you know, the Civil War and World War yeah, one and course. then they decided to just sort of they pull back and say, oh, you know, that was good for a few years, and that, that's it. Um, with yeah. World War Two, the thing that's different is it is the beginning of what we now call the military-industrial complex and, you know, yeah. everything you associate with, with the U.S. Yeah. Um, although... You know, in the immediate aftermath of World War II, there are major cuts to conventional forces, yeah, uh, which are quite typical in the sort of American pattern, uh, because you see the same thing after the uh, after Desert Storm in 1991. Yeah. Sure. But we always amp up again. And uh, yeah. so, yeah, by, right. so by 1941, I would argue by the middle of the year, the U.S. is actually in the war, but just not officially. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, because mm-hmm. the U.S. is mobilizing, and it's really – participating without declaring war, obviously, you know, the war against the U-boats in the Atlantic. Yes, yeah, so of course. And, well, when,
2: do, when does the Atlantic fleet come in and sort of, you know, the Atlantic meeting of, what's it, 4th of August, isn't it? 41. Yeah, it's in August. And then, and then I think they're, they're there by September,
1: is that right? Yeah, so by the fall, U.S. ships are basically in combat against German U-boats for the most part by that fall. And the embargo that uh, the Roosevelt administration slapped on the the Japanese, you know, uh, that same summer, basically is, I I guess I won't go so far as to say an act of war, but certainly is likely to lead to war. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So. And then you've got the Reuben James, haven't you? Sunk by Eric Top.
2: So the Reuben James is a a destroyer, and it's sunk in October 1941. Exactly. So two months before, well, you know. Eight weeks before before Pearl Harbor. And that's a big deal, isn't it? You know, it's, it's shockwave.
1: You know, Woody Guthrie writes a song about it, doesn't he? I mean, yeah. You know, yeah. It's a it's big a cause deal. It's a cause celeb for the internationalists and and uh, and many Democrats and especially many East coasters are saying, hey, you know, look what Nazi Germany is doing. Uh, we should have been in the war from the beginning and mm-hmm. we need to be doing more. And, and of course, the, the war is working towards a kind of a crisis point uh, at that stage anyway with the the Soviet Union maybe on the verge of collapse and so that certainly has the left wing in the US excited uh to say we need to be doing more and and so you know certainly there's no <laughs> unity obviously but it, it yeah. yeah I mean when the Reuben James uh sinks um with loss of life now you know there, there's there's bloodshed uh yeah. and so it's eerily similar to what's going on in uh, 1916 1917 mm-hmm. um you and everything yeah, yeah. Well, even even later than the Lusitania, because that that, of course, is the sort of that's the opinion shaper at that point uh, in the US is saying, OK, if we are to be in this war and we don't want to be, we're going to be on the allied side because the Germans are barbarians with, uh, you know, with with this unrestricted submarine warfare and also the allied propaganda campaign to paint the Kaiser is basically the devil. And yeah. you know, all of this kind of stuff, German atrocities in Belgium. So Here we are, you know, 1941, it's the same issue, Uh, you know, whether the U.S. can can pursue its commerce and whatever else it wants to do on the high seas in the midst of a world war. And again, it's not a new issue because it had happened in 1916-17, but also uh, during the Napoleonic War, the the major one, you know, in the early 19th century between Britain Hmm. and France, when the U.S. had been drawn into a war with Britain over these same, to some extent, these same issues. You, you yeah, know, yeah, you're either course. with us or against us because we're in an existential war, is the European viewpoint, quite understandably. Yeah. And the American viewpoint is, well, no, we're still doing business. Um, <laughs> we ought to be able to do that yeah. and not really be in the war. Yeah.
0: Um, is the Reuben James sunk by the Germans by accident? What's the German yeah. attitude to American uh, destroyer activity, naval activity? Are they told to avoid um, moments of provocation with the U.S.? Because after all, if this is a repetition of that situation, there are ways of avoiding... Escalating it, aren't they, from the German perspective? Because it's off Iceland, isn't it,
1: the the River James when it's sunk?
0: Yeah. Is it flying an American ensign? Is it mistaken for a British destroyer? I mean, what
1: do we know? It's it's accidentally sunk, but I would say that if the Germans really wanted to avoid any sort of clash like that, they wouldn't have their U-boats in that neighborhood in the first place after the Roosevelt administration had announced, we are going to, uh, you know, garrison Iceland, and we are going to make sure that our... Lend-lease material gets to Britain, and yeah. we will do that with the U.S. Navy. But I also understand why the Germans aren't going to retreat from that position, because if they do, then of course now they're going to allow the U.S. to basically be the the supplier for their yeah. one of their mortal enemies. Um, yeah. So they were in a kind of a no-win situation in that regard. But 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 the commander of U five five two, which is the submarine that sinks it, is 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 Eric Top. He's one
2: of the kind of you know the great U-boat aces, and he's an extraordinary guy, and he writes this I mean, one of the things he's famous for is 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 on a long journey back to base after a patrol. He he writes a long letter about this friend of his that's just a fellow U boat captain that's just been killed, and it's it's deeply moving. It's a, it's a an incredible essay on friendship and love and loss and grief. It's it's just extraordinary. And anyway, if anyone hasn't read it, I strongly urge they do. But I don't think he's aware until after he sunk it that it's American, if I remember rightly. Because I remember he then has a very, very long journey back, thinking, "Am I for the chop? Have I, you know, have I just kissed my not only my career but uh, goodbye, but my life?" Uh, and actually, he's he's sort of you know, he, he, it's absolutely fine. You know, he doesn't get doesn't get kind of hauled over the coals at all. But but you know, it's a it's a destroyer escorting an allied convoy, right. so you yeah. know, it's a totally yeah. fair do to... You know, it's a a completely legitimate target.
0: Exactly. And the Germans, from their position, can't afford to have their hands tied in that situation, can they? So, yeah.
2: But the interesting thing about it is is that it it is a warship, not a merchant vessel. Mm. And one of the, I think you can argue, is one of the great mistakes of of the Wolf Packs is that they target the merchant ships rather than the escorting warships. Yeah. Because... If you destroy the escorts, then once they're out of the way, you can mm. then have an absolute, you, you know, it's happy days. It's a hell of a lot more complicated building a destroyer than it is a liberty ship. Not that liberty ships are really kind of sort of kicking in at this, quite at this stage, but yeah, right. And, and I'd agree. But you know, that, that's, that's the bottom line. Um, and you can say that it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a major mistake of strategy and tactics that they, they don't,
1: they don't go down that route. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting because uh, that's all Dernitz, too, isn't it? I mean, that he decides. All right, we've got to take down the merchant ships. This is the strategic purpose of the U-boats uh, is to destroy their commerce, their resupply, their their uh, yeah. their shipping capacity. But
2: that's fine in 1940 because, the, the you know, the convoys are going unescorted because the British home fleet is 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 staving off any potential invasion threat and the Canadians haven't really got up and running at this point and the Americans aren't interested. So, you know, these convoys are going across the Atlantic and that's the, that's when you get the happy time, the first happy time of July through to kind of October 1940 when there's sort of nothing really doing. And, you know, these convoys are just at the mercy of well, whatever. So ducks. that's why they're, they're sitting ducks, which is why they're sinking 300,000 tons of Month four hundred thousand pounds a month, mm-hmm. you know, etc. But then it quickly, you know, gives them a full sense of security, it gives them a full sense of kind of, you know, actually this is easy peasy. And then suddenly it all kicks in with you know Western approaches, gets this act together, and they start putting out greater escorts, and the Canadians start coming in, and you know the whole thing just gets tougher. But instead of you know what they needed to do is 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 get rid of the escorts, but they don't do that, and and by the time they. You know, it's just too late. You know, it's a a massive mistake from Dennis. But on the other hand, you know, if he'd been a man of sound
1: judgment, he wouldn't have been the second Führer either, would he? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. (laughs) Very true. Well, and the second happy time is much the same thing. All these vulnerable ships near the U.S. coast that don't have proper escort uh, that are, again, kind of sitting ducks. And that's, that's a consequence of lack of preparedness, but also, I would argue, uh, a kind of an over-reliance on air power, which is another major American tendency. Uh, the idea that you could have bombers out there protecting your coasts from U-boats, you know, that this could be the way you make up for a lack of convoys at that stage. And obviously, it didn't didn't work very well. Yeah. Um, so, again, it takes a while to get the act together. So, John, that's the, the, the naval element. By the start of 1941,
0: is what's happening, the different, you know, you've got the air power people, the army people, the naval people, are they all, like, laying out their case for how the war's, if if the war comes, how it's going to be won? Is there this enormous tussle going on <laughs> with different mm. thinkers and different ideas? Because I know about that, you know, we have the... Louisiana right, river ...and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Can you can you just paint the picture of who the factions are and how they're tussling for, for supremacy and control? I mean... Between the three services, rather, although the army, army and the army air force, but let's for the sake of argument, Mm -hmm.
2: and the armed forces, and the armed services and politicos in, in Washington, and the industrialists, the dollar-a-year yeah. men, because there's a, there's, a, there's a fight going on between all three sections. Because oh, of, definitely.
0: Let, let's start with the three services, and then yeah. how, the, how, how the political establishment reacts to that, and then the, the political industrial establishment. So what's going on? What are the Navy saying at this stage? Yeah, well,
1: the, the Congress had actually um, supported the idea of a two-ocean navy as early as 1936, um, so you've got this sort of long range naval building program that we're sort of in the middle of at this stage in 1941 or so. Yeah. Um, and the, the big argument, of course, raging in the Navy is the whole battleship versus uh, aircraft carrier thing is which is the real capital ships? How is the future war going to be fought? Because I think there's a general acceptance in uh, naval command circles that the U.S. is going to be in the war. Yeah. Um, and of course they're, they're certainly they're looking to the convoy thing, but you know, but that's unglamorous. I mean, especially to the to the aviation crew who who like any sort of new weapon, folks are you know tending towards zealotry of like we're the future, we're the future yeah. of warfare, and then these stodgy old battleship people belong fifty years ago or whatever. Their time is past, yeah. and air yeah. power is everything. And so that really kind of intersects in army circles with, of course, the army air forces thinking they have the new weapon war that'll prevent a repeat of World War I. And so they are really pushing hard for resources to be poured into uh, four engine bombers. Um, and, and of course, as, as you guys know, you know, probably way better than I do, that takes enormous uh, manpower and maintenance and uh, fuel, all this kind of stuff it takes to, to be that kind of bomber force, which the RAF had started to become. The Army Air Force is arguing for major priority there within Army ground forces, too. See, I think this is funny as well. It's like it's like we'll always find a way to argue no matter what. Uh, with an army ground forces, the big argument is between the armor zealots who think tank warfare, it's all about mobility and the blitzkrieg. And, um, you know, that's going to revolutionize warfare. And we want mass tank forces that are going to penetrate deep in the inner rear and the stodgy old infantrymen and all, you know, so that there's that tension. And then, like like Jim said, at the higher level of mobilization, the industrialists bickering with the armed services, with the administration. Over exactly how all this is going to proceed and who's going to get paid, what? Well, well it's absolutely clear,
2: isn't it? That, that you know, the the marshal who takes he takes over as chief of staff uh, is it on the first of September or the 3rd of September? But I don't know, I it's think the it's the
1: first of September, nineteen thirty nine. first of September, 1939 of September
2: yeah. He takes over. Yeah. You know, and, and and what he realizes is that they're massively in, inadequately equipped for 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 the global situation. At exactly the same time, the, the Roosevelt has been having precisely the same thoughts. So there 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 there's a sort of meeting of minds. And then, as we were talking about last time, you know, Roosevelt brings in people like Stimson um, and Knox into the kind of war, uh, Navy Board and and Stimson as Secretary of State for War, and these guys are in a different caliber. You know, they're 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 from from the pre- the Democratic predecessors. Two of them are, are obviously Republicans, and the, suddenly there is this urgency, kind of right at the centre of government. But that doesn't mean there's not a lot of people else. Where in, in Washington, who are so extremely suspicious about this, who are nervous about it, who are anti, you know, think this is the thin end of the wedge that, that, you know, once you've kind of opened the door, it'll inevitably be wide open and you'll get sucked into the war. Um, exactly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you've got all that. But the problem is, is, is that the Marshal and the Chiefs of the Army and the Navy and the United States Army Air Corps, as it still is at that point. Mm-hmm. They haven't got a clue how to do this. They don't. They don't know how to mobilize. They're they're, they're soldiers. They're not. You know. They they are sort of administrators to the point that they're administrators of the war machine, but but a very small war machine from the 1920s and 1930s onwards. Uh, and they're just completely ill equipped for suddenly kind of you know mass production of war material, and they haven't got a clue what to do. Which is when Roosevelt very sensibly creates the War Advisory. Commission or whatever it's called. I can't remember
1: in in late May, uh, early June. The War Supplies and uh, what is it? It's an advisory board. Supply priorities and allocation board. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah.
2: Uh, Edward Stettinus the steel magnet is one uh, Bill Nudson, the, um, the, the the chairman of General Motors is another and these guys go this is what you need to do you need to kind of you know keep civilian production going at the same time build up your machine tools and then switch over gradually and that's going to take 18 months and as we discussed last time 18 months up is roughly from June 1940 is December 1941 you know yep. just at the point of entry into war is all very convenient <laughs> which is why it gives the impression that everything you know that, that America merges into the war kind of Oven ready, but 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 of course that yeah. hides a uh, uh, eighteen months of deep trauma and discussion Big and debate and, and and huge numbers of strikes in nineteen forty one, labor strikes throughout the yeah, United States right. and all sorts of political turmoil and also this kind of sort of leveling up between. The politicians in the, in the corridors of Washington who are against all this, the, the money men who, you know, who were the kind of the, the, evil bad guys to come out of the first world war and have been kind of, you know, vilified ever since. And, you know, one of the reasons Roosevelt got in in 1930, the 1932 election was because he was against all that. And, you know, um, and then you've got the, the army and the navy and the, and the air force, small, very small air force kind of jockeying for position and also trying to work out what to do. And all these these three component parts are all largely extremely contradictory. But standing at the middle of all this is Roosevelt, which is one of the reasons why I think he's one of the greatest Americans that ever lived, because he navigates his way through this by a combination of... Natural charisma, leadership, and also non-committal. So he's 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 yes. very committed <laughs> to, to to what his agenda is, but he doesn't publicly say it. You know he's yeah. ve- you know he's he's the arch Machiavellian politician. Well, he's, isn't he's he? a he's a
0: brilliant politician, and these people oh. aren't necessarily political people, are they? These right. So mainstream. he runs rings round them. So he's able to he's able to tie them all up in a sack together and drag them in the direction he wants to go.
1: It, 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 he also has this broader vision of what he wants, an endpoint yeah. of what he wants, which is the U.S. in the war yeah. on the Allied side as quickly as possible in his closest partnership with Britain it can possibly have and yeah. helping the Soviet Union as of mid-1941 as much as possible. So he's got this broad strategic vision and and what he wants in the post-war world, and yet, he's a, like you said, he's able to sort of obscure that. And work behind the scenes just beautifully, but John, I, yeah. I think I'm right in
2: saying that that as with Britain, his priority is naval power and air power. It's it's not it it's not having young guys slaughtered on the ground. And so when he mm. talks about kind of you know we need whatever it is fifty billion to through Congress in the summer of 1940, he's going, you know we're gonna make you know fifty thousand aircraft that's the headline figure it's but it's aircraft not tanks or guns or or oh, a million strong army you know it's air power it's it's modern it's it's you know air power yeah. is 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 the conduit to avoiding Mass slaughter on the ground. So one of what exactly. we didn't like about the last lot is is the kind of the trenches, the slaughter of our young generation. How we're going to get around this is through air power and naval power and technology and modernity. That's you know it's it, it's a steel, not flesh. It's the same principle that the British are going. Through. Yeah,
1: which is which is also very American. You know, we're going to rely on all this technology, air power, sea power. It still is. It's it's still the same thing. Uh, but, you know, of course, Roosevelt had been assistant secretary of the Navy as a younger man. Yeah. And so he really saw himself as a naval thinker. And he would even say he would even refer to the Navy as we. And this was something that kind of troubled <laughs> You know, Marshall initially and many other high-level army officers, but in fairness <laughs> to Roosevelt, I think he did take army considerations well, and and I think ultimately started to adjust pretty well. But but yeah, I mean, this is his hope entering the war uh, that you'll be able to win it through air and sea power, and uh, maybe that the Soviets will do the the grind on the ground um, and the Chinese in, in in Asia, and and I think that's that vision is somewhat you know, fulfill, but also I think it's tragic, too, because we end up with, uh, as I've always argued so obnoxiously, uh, we end up with nowhere near enough ground combat troops, um, nowhere near enough infantrymen in particular. It has so many consequences throughout the, the war, but especially about the 44 or 45 phase of the war when the U.S. is really doing most of the heavy lifting in terms of fighting on the ground, and yet really is something to the end of its tether. Uh, And I think that's one of the misconceptions about this war is that uh, the U.S. just has endless reserves of stuff and people by Mm. 1945. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. There's no question, but there's not enough people. Isn't that interesting? That's such a good point. Yeah, because how many divisions do they end up with by the end of the season? 91 in the Army. So 91.
2: So let, let's compare that to Another the Soviets. Six in the Marine Corps. Compare that to the Soviet Union. Compare that to, oh, yeah. to, to, to the Wehrmacht.
1: Yeah, and of course, you know, the division, the size of it and the manpower and the equipment are different, obviously. So let's just say roughly two Soviet divisions would equal one U.S. maybe or, yeah. or depending on when we're talking about the Germans, one to two, something like that. But obviously, those two countries mobilized a lot more divisions than did the U.S. And, uh, you know, so 91 divisions to fight both the German armed forces and the Japanese, the, the, the Japanese yeah, is nowhere near enough. And even when we add in the six Marine Corps divisions, OK, now we got 97. Originally, yeah, you know, even, but even, even when
2: you add in the, you know, whatever
1: it is, 50 British and Commonwealth, it's still not enough. It's nowhere near enough. And, you know, an original army planners were thinking of the possibility of a 200 division army, something like that. Um, You know, so that gets scaled back under these practicalities. And a lot of the resources are invested in the army. What becomes the Army Air Forces? You know, it was the Air Corps. Then it becomes the Army Air Forces. And then obviously the U.S. Air Force after the war. And the other
2: thing is, is that, that what we're seeing, you know, you look, you look at the kind of huge exponential growth and you're looking at that, that image, which I've cited a couple of times of U.S. forces loading up for the Sicily invasion, uh, I think Berserker in, in Tunisia, in Northern Tunisia. And there's a row of landing ships and there's lots of Shermans and there's troops going on. And you're thinking, wow, you know, that in kind of two years or whatever, that's, that's absolutely phenomenal, which is, you know, three years rather from, 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 you know, June ground zero in June 1940 through to kind of July mm-hmm. 19, or loading up in June 1943. That's absolutely going some, but what one has to remember that, that you know, there's one core of US troops in, in the Tunisia campaign. You know, yeah. there's there's whatever it is, four divisions, I think it is, into Sicily.
1: Yeah, three initially, and then one, yeah, right. one that follows on. Right. The first selective service
2: division that goes into action anywhere is I think I'm right in saying the 88th mm. which doesn't the come into the line until eight. March 1944 yeah that's the first one anywhere in the whole world you know the number of the number of divisions you've got army divisions you've got operating in the Pacific before 1944 is literally cannon on one hand um you know so it's 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 not until 1944 that that full weight of infantry is coming in, and that's of course why it takes so long. I mean well, it yeah. takes as then long as it also, does,
0: but then that's also the point at which the, the, the highest attrition starts to kick in. so you've got the, you may have more at your disposal, but you're much more you're exposing them to far more attrition and wastage, aren't you? So that, so it's all very well having more, but you, need, you still need even more, you know and we, right. we, you talk about because you've got plan. more to do well exactly but then you and then you look ahead to the plans for the invasion of japan in in 45 and the 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 numbers required kind of aren't there really and there's a proper manpower pinch kicking in in europe by april where they aren't getting replacements anymore because they need to hold them back i mean it's that that whole that whole sort of cliff edge in terms of manpower that the americans may have gone over in in late 45 it, it, it's clearly a major driver for, the, the, you know, trying to win it using air in the form of the atom bomb. I mean, it's sort of, once you look at it like that, that all explains itself even more clearly, I think, that they haven't got the people. And it
1: clearly yeah. does. And, you know, the other thing is, okay, the men are available within American society, but you would have had to expand the draft fairly dramatically and train these folks up. Okay, you could do that, but that takes societal will. And that takes political support. Of course, we all know we discussed this in the in the first episode about how how close run, you know, the the draft was in Congress in 1940 and 41. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you're going to have more support for it in the context of war. But, you know, as time goes on and the casualties mount up and it's all all this fighting is happening overseas, not in Boston or San Francisco or something on home soil. You know, I mean, the, the will was running out in 1865 uh, for the North fighting on home soil, you know, you know, in the Civil War. By 1945 and 46, let's say you have to have uh, Operation Olympic and Operation Cornet, the invasion of Kyushu and Honshu. I mean, whether the, the U.S. is really going to have the will to see that forward, I, I, I've always thought is an open question. It's no certain thing, I guess, just and given
0: that. that the Japanese are doing everything they can to create as much bloodshed as possible exactly. to put the Americans off and uh, increase their negotiating power. Um, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll take a quick break, and then we'll be back. And I've, I have a question that I want yeah, to... Yeah, and I've uh, got a thought as well. I've got a question I want to lob in. So we'll be back in a second. Welcome back to We Have Ways USA. Uh, we're talking further about the mobilisation of the US and at the start of the Second World War. John, a, a simple question. You talked about by 1944, the American army's in full flow. They've got all the men they, they can possibly raise with the draft as it is. But also by 1944, there's a standard piece of battlefield equipment, the Sherman tank, the M4 and its various variants, that didn't exist in 1939. It didn't exist in 1940 and first sort of appears in 1941 in sort of prototypical form, how on earth does that happen? Because after we've said the tank men are arguing with the with the um, infantrymen. Fine, yeah, we, we expect that, because that's the tenor of debate in the 1920s and 30s. But the tank men are obviously arguing with the tank men within the tank community about what they want from their tank, Now it's a Brit, which is a British thing of the cruiser and the infantry tank and how that all pieces together. How is the M4... You know, because it sort of appears this this thing that's and, and you can and you can see the thinking from the from the Stewart as well from the M three that you've got the sponsons you've got the bogies that are removable. There's like an idea of how you do this, and an idea of where what kind of engine you use, and an idea of of the approach. But how does this thing materialize? This. This thing that's bog standard by 1944, as standard as the GI's helmet, for instance. Definitely. Sort of symbol of the American
1: effort. I mean, the US builds 86,000 tanks in the course of war, many of which are Shermans. Um, And so I think the Sherman is a product of finally industry marrying together with um, the military uh, to say, okay, what can we do? You know what? What is going to be the most efficient kind of tank we can create that we can ship? I mean, really, that's the entire determinant. What kind of tank can we ship? I tell my students this all the time because, of course, like like they love the tank-focused video games and all that. It's fun to play with the German tanks because they're they're big and they're nasty and they're tough and all that. But I tell them, well, you know, it may not be glamorous, but you need to be able to ship a tank. So it leads to coordination at like at the War Production Board level um, of what kind of landing craft you're building versus what kind of tanks. And in terms of how quickly this happens, well, I think it's a microcosm for the war effort as a whole. Once the will is there, especially post Pearl Harbor, now you're going to have resources. Now you're going to have factories retooled, amped up. All of that kind of stuff is going to happen. So it's actually similar to the war effort and and something we were just talking about before, like all the different uh, clashes in Washington, D.C. among leaders and all that. The War Department had always had the War Plans Division, which is like this sort of brain cadre for the whole thing. And it's quite interesting. You look at the War Plans Division, a lot of the future leaders of the war come through there, whether it's Eisenhower or, you know, Giro or Ridgeway or or whoever. Okay, so all of this had been sort of planned out ahead of time and eventually comes to fruition once you have the will to do it. And you certainly have the means because you have a secure industrial base, you've got the resources, um, you know, so... The Sherman tank then, I think, isn't that big a surprise in that context. Yeah. That the the means had always been there, but the will hadn't. Right. So I think that's really where it comes from. So it's the
0: sort of American army's th- kind of think tank role in the in the 20s and 30s, where there are people sitting around debating this stuff, and, and you get the green light, and so you can come up with something pretty quickly. Because after all, the Germans, for instance, with their tanks, I never had plenty of time to try things out and... Figure it out and test it in the field and have it all, ru- uh, you know, up and running. But you know, by the end of 1942, the Sherman arrives in North Africa and is is a sort of game changing piece of kit. Mm-hmm. America produces a handful of tanks in 1939. I mean, it's, it's only yeah. just double digits, isn't it? It's extraordinary.
1: Well, because most of the automation of society is going towards civilian. Vehicles. The US is the most heavily automated society in the world at that point. And so now the automation is just simply going to be pre prioritized to to making tanks and especially, you know, less glamorous trucks and and stuff like that. Um, You know, as I think, I don't know if we talked about this in the first episode, but by mid 1942, you could not buy a new model civilian automobile in this country. Uh, the government had basically strong armed; it had stopped, and it strong armed the, the the car makers and said, "Well, we're going to make sure you don't get the rubber and the glass and the steel and all the things you need. But we've got another nice little thing for you: you can build the war material, you can build all the war vehicles." And yeah, so- this
2: is well. This is where Bill Nutsen like, comes in because this is exactly. this is exactly the language he's preaching. But he, well, the interesting thing about Bill Nutsen is he says, "You've got to carry on making your your Plymouths and your Cadillacs and all the rest of it until." You can immediately switch over because you can 't just go right as of tuesday we 're going to stop doing building cars and we're going to we 're yep. going to build tanks because otherwise you 've got a hiatus you've got a, you've got a bit in the middle where no one's doing anything and you 've got to keep these guys working the whole time they 've got to be employed they've got you know the company's got to make money and then at the point where you're, you've got your machine tools ready you 've got your design ready you've got everything good to go that 's when you switch over and then and then you do a gradual switch over but a, a quick one but it's not kind of overnight it 's kind of over a matter of months. And then once you've got everyone, everything switched over, then you're in business and you can start doing it. And what the, and what the Americans realize at a very early, early stage is that numbers really, really count and they're going to count in this war. It's a numbers game. And, and, and you don't need the best. What you need is numbers. And, and, and funny enough, I mean, the same thing is applying to Ukraine, isn't it? I mean, you know, the, the, the T90s have, you know, they, they all are very sophisticated and nice and brilliant. They've got all the kind of gizmos and all the rest of it, but. Once they go, you've got a problem because the more sophisticated and more complicated the tank is, the harder it is to build, the more man hours it takes, the more cost it takes. And if you lose one, they're harder to replace. Whereas if you've got a kind of, if you've got a middle, mid range tank that will fit easily on shipping that you've already made and are continuing to make because you know, to start putting Pershings on, you've got to sort of change the configuration of your shipping a bit. Uh, and that's the problem because you then you've got to start thinking about, do we need a different shipping design? And you've already gone down one particular route and you need different hoists which are capable of dealing with something which is heavier and, you know, so on and so on and so on. Or do you just carry on chucking into the battle something that is absolutely adequate that can still knock out a tiger, can still knock out a tiger too if you really, really have to. Um, it might cost a few more casualties, but, but, but you will have lots of them. You will be able to smother the battle. Battlefield. Yeah, absolutely. That's what you want. So for sure. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm such a fan of the Sherman and I think it's great. But the thing is, they're
0: making that they're making that decisions and those decisions at a time where they don't know what the Battlefield
2: is, where they don't know what it's like. Mm. Well, obviously, there's a certain amount of luck that comes into it, isn't there? the grant is that you know what they've just i think i think the, the the key thing on this is what size do we want our tank to be mm. and, and the 30 ton tank the medium tank we can fit it on ships is going to have a decent gun you know two years down the line is a 75 millimeter gun going to be enough yes not you know but we need it on a proper turret we can't do that now but let's kind of make this chassis to start off with and get that ball rolling you know the suspension we're using yep that works can you get to the gearbox can you get to the engine tick tick it's a bit like the you know the basic design of the spitfire you know you know once you've got the kind of the basics right you can put a bigger engine into it know, it's the same with the sherman you you can put a bigger gun on it. you put a 76 millimeter high velocity gun on it you can put a 17 pounder fire you know and turn yeah, it into it's a, a really fire. adaptable platform yeah you, you know because the basics are there and those early decisions are that's a bit of future gazing but it's also kind of okay we want we want something that's better than now Something that we reckon in two years' time is still going to be good, but something that is basically easy to
1: make and that we can continue and we can upgun if we need to. Right, and for me as an operational commander, it gives me flexibility because yeah. I going to keep a lot of these things in operation because it can be maintained. I'm going to be able to use it over most of my battle area because it's not so heavy that it can't move over certain bridges or whatever. Um, and I can use it for what is ultimately... Just only, in my opinion, the the major use of tanks in World War II and most of history of tanks in support of infantry closely aligned together, so protecting each other. The Sherman is really quite ideal for that. We don't really want it in a toe to toe battle with a Tiger. How often is that really going to happen?
2: Well, I think it's something. It's like it's like six percent of tank yeah. engagements. I I may be wrong about
1: that, but it's it's that it's single digits. It's probably around there. Yeah, I mean, so in, in terms of pragmatism, it's quite ideal. Well, inevitably, if you've got forty nine thousand Shermans
2: and you've got one thousand three hundred forty seven Tiger tanks, you're not going to come across a guard tank very
0: often, are yeah, you? Yeah, but beyond that, it's interesting that they did focus on the things they got that right. You know that they're not they're not thinking in terms of how do we build the biggest, flashiest tank we can. That they resisted that urge, I think, is really, really, is really, really interesting because we were talking about how you know, earlier on, technology is the American solution to problems. Technology doesn't necessarily mean the latest, sharpest, um, uh, most high-tech thing you can get your hands on. It's often, it's the reliable, it's the sort of shock of the old. You build build a tank out of the parts you know work, and you build a tank designed to be modular and all those sort of things, rather than thinking, how do I put an 88 millimeter gun equivalent on this that will Fix something a mile and a half away. You know, you're not. They're not thinking. They aren't thinking in those terms. It's fascinating that they get this right, given that you know tank opinion is such a divided thing during the twenties, the thirties. All the people talking to each other about tanks have got their own ideas about tank on tank armies, which, as we've as you've just said, John, turn out to it just turns out to be nonsense. It doesn't. It's not what happens. It doesn't work. And if you want to waste tanks, send them out without any infantry. I mean,
2: that's your simplest prescription. But don't you also think it's because in their heart of hearts, the war leaders in America are prioritizing the Navy and the Air Force. You know, that's where your technology and your modernity comes in. Mm -hmm. Because that's part of the whole still still not refreshing because it has to so 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 you 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 prioritize you know you're you're putting all that that technology brilliance modernity into your aircraft carriers and into your B29s oh, and B- B-17s not into ground attacks because every part of 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 the US military whether it's manpower whether it's machines whatever infantry and armor going into battle is the kind of sort of bottom of the food chain because you know that, that, that that's how you know that that's one of the problems of the infantry is is that you know if you, if you're clever and you've got a college degree and you're well healed you you become a pilot or you go and take a job on a submarine or a destroyer
1: or an aircraft carrier possibly but this begins to change later in the war it begins to change later when the ASTP is ended and and the aviation cadet program is curtailed and all those kinds of that so that's what i said i mean we have to learn these lessons as we go like oh my gosh we need more manpower, more quality manpower. But by then, too, I think the weapons have have adapted somewhat, even on the infantry side of the equation. I mean, yeah, we're still operating with the BAR, but now there's more of them, and that's a good thing. Um, yep. you know, so the other part of this that's really overlooked, in my opinion, if we're talking about especially that AMP up in 1941 and, and whatever, is the racial side. Hmm. Because you, you basically have a country that is mobilizing for war, in order to supply the allies through Len Lee, supposedly not in the war, but as we've explored, we really are. We're just not declared. And of course, you've got all this hardcore segregation. Uh, it's a country with a, with a quasi apartheid system in, in some mm. respects, you know? And so uh, A. Philip Randolph and Walter White, uh, Randolph was, was uh, a major labor leader. He had, he had founded uh Uh, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, uh, most of whom were African-American. And and, then Walter White was the head of the NAACP, who had uh, just done amazing work to expose lynchings and all this kind of stuff. They threatened a major march on D.C. if FDR didn't do something about segregation and discrimination in war industries. There were going to be a lot of jobs, a lot of opportunity. Um, This forced some change. And in that, you see the beginnings of a, a pretty major civil rights movement all of which is going to be extremely important for mobilizing this war machine because African-American laborers are a huge part of this. And of course, obviously, on the military side, too, Uh, much less the social tension there, too. Uh, And so I, I see that as a really integral part of the story of why all this stuff works. The way we're exploring it is because now through sheer force of activism, it became more inclusive. To use more of the talent base, more of the manpower, Uh, and of course, you see this too across across gender lines too. Obviously, especially post Pearl Harbor, uh, when men are going in the armed forces, and the the government really now wants to use women in what had been sort of male-oriented jobs like welding and whatever, Uh, and especially for white women, more opportunities. Um, That that is just a major side of of this whole kind of, I guess, what we would all agree is a success story of yeah. uh, mobilizing for war, and so fairly, you know, quickly.
0: Are black men included in the draft? They are. Uh,
1: but, but, the, <laughs> but after that, your treatment is different um, yeah. if, if you're a black man, because you, you can be drafted, but once you're in the armed forces, you're going to be segregated, almost certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and it was pretty hardcore segregation that existed, especially in the Navy, uh, where, you know, you basically have two jobs open to, uh, stevedore or, or, or galley cook, um, that's, that's pretty much about it. The army is starting to have more opportunities, uh, especially on the aviation side, most famously, of course, but you know, again, that that's what the U S is going to have to come face to face with is this, the fact that it really honestly has a lot of characteristics of Nazi Germany in some respects, in terms of this sort of fascist style segregation and apartheid that, that Hitler would have loved. Um, And and creates certainly a level of hypocrisy in some respects, but also appeals to what is best about the country, uh, that it really does stand for these great ideals for which it's fighting alongside its allies that also have their own warts. Um, (laughs) I mean, we won't even talk about the Soviet Union, a monstrous tyranny. But I mean, Britain and its empire and, you know, the, the inequalities and all that.
2: Well, it's, it's absolutely. And, and we have and, and there's lots of soul searching about that. And by, by the end of the Second World War, the, the empire is done. And it's not done just because economically it's no longer viable. It, it, it's done because British people are no longer interested in having an empire. Yeah. Well,
0: the, why, argue, why should we be doing this? Well, events have argued it out of existence, basically, haven't right? they? Uh, and also, yeah. there's, you yeah. know,
2: you know, we've we've Alan and I have discussed it a lot on the podcast. John is, you know, the the impact of the Beverage Report, which comes out in the very end of 1942. You know, this idea of, you know, what, what are we trying to? What is the Britain? We're trying to create after the war. Well, it's about it's about social security. It's about better. It's about welfare state. It's about a national health service. It's about better education, better food, better for better for for Much more egalitarian. Society less less class-riven, you know, and, and those are great ideals, and they absolutely strike a chord with those at the front because everyone who's a serviceman, whether they be in in the jungles of the Arakan in Burma or whether they be in Sicily or wh- wherever, they're issued with the beverage report, and they're reading this stuff, and and this is part of morale and all the rest of it, and that, actually that leads me to the, to the the point you were making about about societal will. And one of the things I always think is interesting and I remember I remember being with the British army on a battlefield study in northern Italy and we were on Monte Altuzzo and I remember everyone sort of going god you know isn't it amazing how the Germans were still fighting at this stage and I was thinking, are you kidding? You know, the Germans, they're a totalitarian state. There's a, you know, their, their morale might be shot, but there's a very good reason why they're still fighting. What's much more interesting is why the why Americans, thousands of miles from home, are fighting up this horseshoe ridge, near vertical ridge, <laughs> you know, sacrificing entire companies to kind of... Win a kind of knobbly spur at one end of the horseshoe. You know, in September 1944. I mean, that's insane. What are they doing? What What is motivating them? And and you're right that that balance uh, for Roosevelt and and America's war leaders of how you keep that those Americans still going up that knobbly spur, whether it be in the Hurtgen forest or whether it be a knoll on Peleliu or whether it be um, a spur in the Apennines, in Northern Italy, what a, Difficult, challenging line that is to walk because push too hard and you, everyone's going to go, forget it. You know, and we're a democracy. You know, what are you going to do about it? And, and, you know, that's what gives us the moral, the moral high ground, right? You know, so there's all this stuff going on and it's just. You know oh, you know I've got a bit obsessed with morale in the second world War, but yes. I think rightly so because yes, it's, it's rightly so, so it's so key to I the know. whole thing and, and and you can see the political background of all those decisions which has come into play, which all ultimately boils down to that, whether it's the kind of argument about whether you use the atomic bomb or what well, but this leads me to to, to
0: another thought let's say you're a conscripted man in nineteen forty one and you you know you you're drafted in january forty one right. And that means you're taken out of the labour market. Is what's happening? If you're not drafted, that your wages are going up because there's less hands to the pump, and that actually life is pretty good on Civy Street in the summer of 1941. If you're not, if you're not a mobilised man, and if you're sat in a camp somewhere and you've been on route marches or you're peeling potatoes or whatever, and you and you, the kit isn't ready yet because there is a, this, a gap. You know, the M one hasn't come online as a rifle, the stuff's still coming in, the equipment's not there yet, the officer training's undergoing a massive shake up because it's been found to be inadequate. Morale is all over the place. Is there a is there a like morale vacuum when people look at Civvy Street and think what the hell am I doing
1: in the army? If you're in the- oh my god, yeah, oh my god, and especially after Pearl Harbor, yeah, you know when when really the wages really start to go up and the yeah. jobs and the oh my god, the resentment and and even you know before Pearl Harbor, you were asking like if you're were, Ali, you're were saying like if you're drafted in January uh, forty one, you yeah. know there's a number of guys who were drafted even a few months before. Uh, whose terms of enlistment now are going to be extended because of the renewal of the draft in 1941. And they are really ticked off. And a lot of them, there was this there was this acronym called Ohio over the hill in October. So that meant they were going to go AWOL in October yeah. when they thought their terms, you know, of enlistment were ending. This is, you know, two months before Pearl Harbor. Um, it didn't turn out to be as bad as it could have been, but the government was worried. Now, as this whole thing unfolds, yeah, I mean, a number of people had left economic circumstances that were better than what they had in the services. And I, I, I don't know whether it's the majority, but certainly a lot. And they deeply resented that. And so the way this manifests itself during the war is resentment against labor unions that had, you know, so many strikes during the war and, and, and all this kind of stuff. And so if I'm a soldier sitting in a foxhole, Sacrificing myself economically, ultimately, maybe my life. I'm away from my family. I don't really want to hear about a a guy, even if he's a coal miner, which is a tough job. um, I don't want to hear about him going on strike when I need the stuff he's producing and he's got three good meals. He can be at home with his family. He's got shelter. He doesn't have anybody shooting at him. Can you imagine the anger there? And so, um, the, the labor unions come out of the war, seeing their, their power curtailed in the Taft-Hartley Act in 1947, uh, which is so popular that uh, it leads to a, a congressional override against a presidential veto. You need two thirds for that. And that, that, that doesn't happen very often. So that's bipartisan support. Uh, for a, a a new law that was going to curtail the power of labor unions.
2: Well, I think I'm right in saying there's more there's more labor strikes in 1941 than any other year
1: in U.S. history, bar one, maybe. Yeah, they're, they're it's exactly. And they're using military force sometimes to put these guys back on the job, um, which was a long tradition in, in American history, too, in some respects. But uh, yeah, but once the Soviet Union is in the war on the Allied side, the labor unions became much more amenable to the war effort. It's just when the when the war begins, they want their share of the wealth, which is, of course, very understandable, but also a little annoying if you're a soldier overseas. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, so that's interesting because after the Second World War, you know, the, the UK
0: turns left, as it were, politically. And, you know, you, you have a government that nationalizes stuff. And so so basically locks the trade unions into the post-war political settlement, as it were. But it's fascinating that America, in, the, in in that sense, turns right
1: on its trade relations inheritance of the Second World War. In the U.S., it's sort of both. We both turn turn right and left because yeah. we turn left in the sense that you're going to have a pretty uh, strong civil rights movement yeah. that's going to, to come into being and gain momentum. I I would argue directly because of the war, um, and and of course in labor matters we turn right, which was probably maybe you know maybe inevitable in the sense that you know. FDR's administration had been so pro-labor union. When he took office, there were 3 million labor union members in the country. By the time he died in 1945, there were 14.8 million. So labor had been growing in size and power. And I think there was wow. probably an inevitable kind of reaction to that. And World War II just gives it wings in the sense of so many servicemen who resented you know, wartime strikes. Um, and then we turned, I don't know how what you think, like right or left, could be either of the, the demobilization and, and curtailing of the armed forces and all that. Uh, you know, both parties will be associated with that at various times. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it is. It's interesting.
2: Ah, oh, this, this is why the Second World War is still, World War II is still incredibly relevant, obviously. I know. Yeah. You know, because because yeah, the tentacles no are still there, aren't they? They, they, they are. just are. The, the whole post post-war world is shaped by those years. I mean. There's
1: no doubt. Ah, brilliant!
2: Well, I I kind of—I know we—I know we said we were going to do two chats on mobilisation in America, but I kind of feel this is an apple that hasn't quite—we haven't got to the core yet, necessarily. It may take us a while to get to the core. Yeah, we can do more.
0: Just about peeled it. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, just about (laughs) peeled it exactly. We'll return to the subject, no doubt. Um, Thanks everybody for listening. Um, It's been a pleasure to start the year talking to you again, John and. Jim and I have already done a couple of these since the new year, but um, it's it's great to be chatting again. We'll see you all Absolutely. very soon. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye.
2: Cheerio. See you.